welcome back to the Times and Places podcast with me, Caitlin Bryant. Each week, I sit down with a different guest to discuss how particular times and places has meant something of significance to them or has impacted their life in some way. This episode is a really special one to me as I sat down with one of the very first women that I looked up to from a young age. Now, most people have that one teacher that was there to support, guide and inspire them. And I was lucky enough to have a woman called Rhea Mannings as one of my first examples of a strong, empowering female. However, this episode is not actually about our relationship or why Rhea was an inspiration to me as a child. It's what she's gone on to experience since and the work and legacy she's created in recent years that I will forever be in awe of. 10 years ago, Rian experienced every parent's worst nightmare when her youngest child, George, suddenly died at the age of one. While Rian and her family started grieving the loss of their little boy, the unimaginable happened. And just five days later, her husband Paul tragically committed suicide after being unable to cope with the death of their baby, George leaving Rian to grieve the loss of both her child and husband, as well as raising her two other children. However, what's so unbelievable about Rian's story is she wanted to make a change, so no other family would have to experience what she went through. And this resulted in her starting the charity To Wish, that offers support to those affected by sudden death in young people. In our conversation, Rian speaks so candidly about the events that happened 10 years ago, and how she continues to deal with her grief and mental health after losing Paul and George. My chat with Rian has been recorded over two episodes, with part two coming out next week, as we also speak about hope and happiness, as well as the incredible work that Rian has done with her charity To Wish, which is changing and saving lives across the country. We also discuss how Rian found love again and talk about the people that are most important to her in her life. But before then, get ready to listen to the third episode of Times and Places with Rian Mannings. Rian, welcome to the Times and Places podcast. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. Thanks for having me. No worries. I've got to be honest, I don't know if it will ever feel natural to call you by your first name. (laughs) Honestly, in my mind, you'll forever be Mrs Burke. But I guess people will gather from my desire to want to call you Miss. Our relationship started over 15 years ago now, which is kind of hard to believe. That is. Makes me feel very old. I mean, it makes me feel old. old. (laughs) But I would have been a shy little school girl and you would have been like the cool young PE teacher. But I guess teaching's a side of you that not many people know you for these days. But it's something that I really wanted to highlight because before all the incredible work that you've done with your charity, which we'll get into later, you've always been a truly inspirational person. Little did I know back then just how much of an inspiration you'd continue to be throughout my life. But what I would love to know is how and why did you get into teaching? Because Am I also right in thinking you started training as a police officer or you were a police I officer? I wanted to be a police officer. Yeah. yeah, and I was a special constable and I loved, the, that's all I wanted to do was join the police force. But I went off to university to do a degree in sports science and then started doing some work with children and that's when I decided that I'd like to be a teacher. Yeah, very different. Totally different. Yeah. You've literally lived a thousand lives. Yeah, I have. It's mad. Because was it also through teaching that you met your husband, Paul? 
Yeah. Because I've also heard that you've said that you described it as like love at first sight. But how did you guys meet and what was your first impressions of him? So we met on a blind date. So I was teaching at, in a school in Taunton. He used to go to the school. He came back to play cricket for an old boys match. And I was obviously teaching there. And then we were set up that evening on a blind date. And it was, for me, love, in, love at first sight. Absolutely smitten. And um, that's how we met. And that's the start of our journey, really, together. No Tinder. No Tinder. Then. I don't even know if Tinder was invented no, then. No, I've not delved into that world. Because when it came around, I was in a relationship. And now it's like, that's the only way people meet. I feel like yeah. I need to try and find I another think mobile phones you. were only just invented when I... Because I can remember receiving my first ever text message from him. No way. Yeah, because a little envelope appeared on my old brick of a mobile phone. And I was like, what's that envelope doing? And it was a, it was a text message. Oh my gosh, that's That amazing. really makes me feel old. You're not old, I promise you. But how did he propose to you? Was it like a big proposal? We'd been together for a long time, about yeah. eight years. Um, never thought he was going to do it. And we went to Dubai on a surprise holiday. Um, I didn't suspect it because I honestly had given him up him asking me. And we stayed in the Burj Hotel yeah, yeah, yeah. for one night. And um, that's where he proposed. No way. Yeah. I think I might have told you this, but and the girls are probably going to be mortified from me telling you. But we were in year seven when you got married to Paul. Yeah. And you would have been Mrs. Jones. Miss Jones. Jones yeah. Miss Jones back then. Yeah. And we, it was myself, Bella, Hannah, Gina. We were like obsessed with the idea that Mr. Roberts, so like little Gav Roberts, was like in love with you. He had this like unrequited love. <laughs> so we were honestly like so devastated that we're like who on earth is this guy marrying mrs jones like it's supposed to be mr roberts and we were honestly we were gutted but obviously oh. we now realize i knew that you all thought that though we were obsessed with that idea and you know when we got married so he was at our wedding because he's a very he was and still is a very good yeah. friend of ours when they said is there anyone in the congregation who isn't happy about this mr cummings started coughing really loud and nudging <laughs> mr roberts and luckily paul saw the funny side of it but, yeah, and yeah. That, honestly and like I, like I think back now and just like where did we get that from but we were just we were like oh yeah Mr Roberts he's in love with Miss Jones <laughs> oh, I know oh, that's a lifetime ago yeah but I guess we've kind of shied away from the elephant in the room and mm -hmm. I know the elephant is something that is quite important to you and your charity and I know it's the mascot of it mm -hmm. And that elephant being the moment that sort of changed your life forever. And in the podcast, I ask all of the guests what their lowest point has been in their life so far. And anyone who knows you or is aware of your story will know the answer to that question. Because it was 10 years ago now, you experienced every parent's worst nightmare. Can you talk us through the events that rocked your world? Yeah, of course. Um, I was teaching, still in the same school. Um, just come home from work and that's when George, my youngest son, fell ill. Um, was taken to hospital down the road, um, but sadly within two hours of being admitted, he passed away. Um, staff were absolutely amazing who looked after us, but it became clear very quickly that they just weren't equipped to support anyone, let alone parents whose child dies suddenly. Losing your child and then losing your husband in such a short space of time genuinely like I cannot fathom it there's mm -hmm. no matter how much I can try and like sympathize and know that how much that hurt 
I will never be able to understand. But do you, like after going through something like that, do you kind of live in a constant fear of death, maybe more so than you did beforehand? Because the worst has literally happened to you. So after Paul died, which was the fifth, you know, the fifth day after George died, my whole sort of innocence of life was taken. And, and exactly what you said, it's 10 years nearly. And even now, I expect something bad to happen. Mm. So my grieving, there's two parts to my grieving. One part is the missing of, of Paul and George and what should have been and how much I loved them and have to live without them. But actually, the hardest part of my grief is the fear and the expectation something else as bad is going to yeah. happen. And that's where my PTSD was very much linked to. And, you know, I'm not ashamed to ever admit I'm still having support around, you know, the scanning and being really hypervigilant mm. for the next bad thing to happen. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Like, every time I hear this story, I just can't believe that something so awful and sad can happen to someone but what I just find so fascinating is how you're able to kind of recall such harrowing events with such ease but do you find that having to tell the story so often allows you to dissociate from the words that you're saying sometimes yeah I I think you're so used to wearing a mask as well and it becomes a story yeah. so even though it's your life you talk about it so much so I talk about it and probably share my story in detail three four times a week um and I write about it a lot and obviously think about it a lot so it's just part of me now and it doesn't upset me when I leave here I will I will get quite tearful because yeah. it takes a lot of energy to keep it in but um it's really important to talk about it and if I didn't talk about it people wouldn't remember them necessarily and their names wouldn't live on yeah so. yeah and was it when after when you finally did come back from the hospital after George had passed was it something that you and Paul were continually speaking about were you ever in denial over what had happened no um and that's why it'll never make sense to me because we were very open yeah. you know are you in denial how do you accept how do you accept it yeah. so quick um and it happened literally he was laughing and smiling and the next minute was on the floor and he never woke up again so how do you come to terms with that and there was nothing there for us but we were there for each other so we talked so openly that weekend we talked about even we always wanted more children we even said that that was still going to happen and even you know a few days after George died we talked about going to Lapland for Christmas to take the other ch children obviously we had two other children who were only two and three um and we talked and we cried together um and that's why I think what happened a few days later then didn't really make any sense yeah, and like I guess it shows that oftentimes there are no signs when people are suffering and contemplating suicide and it makes it even more important to receive that support and talk, especially when you're experiencing something as tragic as losing a child. But I also wanted to ask you that do you still, I know obviously they're not here with you, but do you still feel them really close to you and you kind of are ever aware of their presence? Is, do you ever see sort of signs or do you feel them or is that not something that you've ever really experienced? Um, I think everyone believes in their own thing and yeah. there's no right or wrong and if it brings you comfort, so be it. There's been elements um, of little things that have happened. 
I, I know they've gone, but they are a massive part of my life mm. um, through work, through my children. Um, you know, I don't know what I believe in, what happens to you afterwards, nothing like that. Um, I spend very little time at the grave, for instance. So for me, that means very little to me. Whereas some people, it will mean a lot. Yeah. But, oh my God, they, you know, they're one of the first things, if not the first thing I still think about when I wake up in the morning. Yeah. And I often think about people like you in my life who have really similar stories and it really sort of debunks any belief that I have in serendipity because you just think, why? But is there a part of you that is able to have that little belief in fate or is it almost like, well the worst has happened to me. I could never believe that kind of things happen for a reason or there's destiny in the world because you've, like you said, you've experienced the worst or can you sometimes hold on to that notion? I think you have to sometimes. So I obviously hated the world, hated everything about everyone and anything when it happened. Um, But now, how can I not believe this happened to me for a reason with... The, the amount of families we're supporting through the boys' legacies. Yeah. So that brings me comfort. I think if I didn't find a positive, and you know, like you said, is that the right thing to say anything positive can come out of this? It, it can't, but positive things have come out of absolute tragedy. And it's no consolation, but at least something brings me comfort every day. Yeah. And I guess it's, I mean, does it make the pain easier? I don't know if it makes the pain easier. It makes the pain probably easier to live with. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, and you know, I even look at my son and my daughter. Our lives, our course of our lives have changed, mm. even though they were two and three. Because of what we've been through as a family, their lives are going to take a different path than potentially it wouldn't have before they lost their brother and their daddy. Um, and that doesn't necessarily mean they get involved in the charity, but maybe they'll want to work with, I don't know, death or bereavement or medical or something along those lines because you don't ever want this to happen to you and you know if I could turn the clock back for many reasons I would but it makes you a different person and it's made me a better person and that shouldn't be the case but you do become very different after going through something like we did as a family yeah What I'm constantly in awe of is how in your darkest days you were able to channel all of that sadness and grief and anger and turn it into something good, which resulted in you starting the charity To Wish. Can you tell us a bit more about To Wish? Yeah, so I didn't know what to do when the boys died. Like, and I'm not just talking about work, I was talking about life in general. Mm. And I just, and I was angry, you know. George died... We eventually found out he had pneumonia, but it took nearly four months to find that out. So at the time, we didn't know how he died. But you also know in life that sadly children do fall ill and pass away. Whereas for me, my anger was very much channeled into why I lost Paul. And that wasn't around him taking his own life. You know, I've I've not got and I've never had a problem or an issue with that. My anger was the fact that he should have been with me now and he was let down and we were failed very much by a system. So he would have found it very funny, actually, because uh, I always got my clipboard out, as you lot know. <laughs> you, I loved a project. And I, get, you know, I got my clipboard out and I just thought, what can I do selfishly to keep me sane? Um, and I just decided in the, in the hospital where George died that there needs to be a room for families to sit with a loved one after they've died. Because when our little boy died, there wasn't anywhere. 
and it actually then involved a nurse carrying his dead body through the hospital looking for a room for him to be put in with us passing members of the public so I just started to try and raise some money but from my house I had massive um, fears of leaving the house because I thought something bad was going to happen um and I just relied on my mum and dad and my sister to, to, keep me, to keep me motivated. And then once I was a bit stronger, I just went out to any departments, not, you know, the boardrooms with the executive board. I went to the, the people who really knew what was going on and were supporting families all the time. I shared my story. Um, and what was really sad was how all of the staff admitted, you know, this happens all the time, that there is nothing in place to support people. And that's where that's where it all started, really. Yeah. And how has To Wish helped and supported Holly and Isaac, your son and daughter, since Paul and George has passed? Has it really helped them? I think so. I've had to be really careful. You know, two and three, how do you know what they're yeah. thinking? You know, they're now, you know, stroppy teenagers and are probably going through completely different questions in their heads. And I've always wanted them to be involved in something positive, because how do you how do you how do two children come to terms with that? Um, but I also didn't want to ram it down their throats, because if I was out all the time working for the charity, I never wanted them to think that it had taken me away from them as well. Yeah. And then potential resentment to to Paul and George. So I've always tried to keep the balance. They've always known we do it because Daddy didn't get any help, and we want to help other mums and dads. Um, you know, my son doesn't necessarily want to be, he just wants to play rugby football and play on the Xbox, to be honest, even though he gets involved. Where I can see now that my daughter, who is 14, has an understanding about life mm. and actually does want to help other people as well. Yeah. And do you feel a pressure to have to put a brave face on a lot of the time to kind of be the proof to the thousands of families that you support that look, there is a life beyond grief for if, if you do lose a child or a loved one. Like, do you feel a pressure? And is that quite a heavy responsibility that you have? Yeah, definitely. I, I don't feel a pressure to wear my mask for everybody else necessarily. Yeah. So um, I, I do cry a lot, but I cry behind closed doors. Um, my children used to see me cry a lot and it's important that children do see mm. that. But again... You know, I didn't want to allow them to see it too much. Um, I want people to know there is hope. You know, what I did with tuition, what I do every day, that's not an act. Um, I couldn't allow it to destroy me. And I th I'd like to think people looking in on me can see that there is hope. Um, it's hard work and you're going to have bad days. But actually, there is something at the end of the tunnel. Um I do feel a responsibility for people at times. Um, I've got, I get a lot of messages, like all day, all night from people who have heard my story and want some advice and help. And I do as much as I can. And if I can't help, then that does make me feel really bad for yeah. not being able to. Um, but generally, I just, I just want the children to know and not to resent potentially what Paul and George sort of left us with yeah and I think something and it's like your openness that you you do speak so openly mm. and frankly about so many different topics that people would be too scared to speak of and I feel like one of them is how you've been so 
giving to kind of share about not only your own journeys of mental health but also that of Paul's which obviously resulted in his passing and I know that you've definitely touched on it which is the whole sort of reasoning behind to wish that if he was given that appropriate care and support that maybe he'd still be alive today but what have been the mental health struggles that you faced since they both died um have you got all day go on <laughs> so <laughs> as you know I've always been very open mm. and always worn my heart on my sleeve even when I was teaching yeah. I always wanted to be you know I was no better than the pupils I wanted us to be together and work together and that's how I'd like to think I still am um but I've always been a very con- bit of a control freak always and when your whole world is turned upside down in a heartbeat and you lose all control of everything I had to start my whole life again as a completely different person. And as I touched on earlier, you you know, you don't even recognize yourself in the mirror after you go through such trauma. You know, I couldn't look in the mirror and see myself looking back at me. So I had to start rebuilding myself. And that's where my struggles became. So I threw myself into work with a charity. Mm. I had the kids, the mask I wore for about four or five years. And then one day I... I couldn't get out of bed, like physically. And I, I thought I'd had a stroke overnight because I literally couldn't feel my arms, my, my legs. Saw a doctor and it was, it was clear it was some kind of breakdown. Um, I then saw an incredible psychotherapist. And then I had a few years really on and off of intense treatment. I had some CBT, um, anti-anxiety medication, which, which I'm still on today and potentially will always be on. And um, I'm okay with that if it means I can leave some kind of normal life with my anxiety, um, fear. But I think the two things, obviously, that the worst was my PTSD, obviously, was, um, you know, the flashbacks, the, the, the remembering exactly the smells, the noises, but also the my self-esteem, you know, my self-loathing, because I used to stand up in front of, all your, you know, all the kids and love that. Um, and I, I, I could never go back and do that because I now, and I still do, but it, it's a lot more controlled. I just blamed myself what happened. So I was a bad person and I was a bad mum and I was a bad friend and I was a bad daughter because I put my mum and dad through it. So what people didn't see was how much I hated myself. Um, and that was tough. Yeah. And had you before they both died did you ever have any had you did you know what having anxiety or depression was was it a totally new experience for you oh yeah absolutely and that's and that's what's hard yeah because there was nothing I was you know so so laid back like I said I was always a bit of a control freak but I you know I, I thought I was liked I had friends I thought I was good at my job um I had a wonderful life family I was proud of and after I lost them, I didn't see any good in anybody, anything, especially myself. Yeah. And then you can't understand how grief can make you feel like that. Yeah. Like I, I now can stand up and like talking to you now, I feel fine. I can stand up and talk in front of hundreds of people about tuition, the boys. But if you said now, can you nip to Tesco on the way home and just pick me up something? I would, I'd really struggle to do that. And Why? because I lost my husband and my son. It just doesn't make sense. Mm. And that's what my therapist or my counsellor has been helping me do, is to try and understand how life is. Yeah. And 
is there any logic to say like the triggers if you ha- when you have like a flashback or is it totally random if you can you yeah it, it, it can be triggered by random things so it could be a random song that doesn't even associate with Paul but I can hear the words something along those lines but generally it will be a, a tr- specific trigger so ambulances police cars obviously bridges um anything like that but my biggest trigger and it's what I'm still having therapy for nine years on 10 years on is someone knocking my front door without me knowing so obviously the police turned up to say that Paula died completely unannounced and I still can't answer the front door now Mm. and I'm having support through it and last month I did it for the very first time and I can't even put into words the achievement of that but generally, I just can't. I've got to go into the lounge, look through the window, see who it is, and then open it. Yeah. Um, and it's just bizarre how it all links together, really. Yeah. And that day when they, when there was that knock on the door, did you think that that's what it was going to be? Did you have a gut feeling, or was it a complete shock when you opened the door and there were the police? So I saw them first through the window. Um, so. I think we all know if a police officer in uniform comes to your front door and knocks the door, there's a chance that it's not going to be good news. Mm. We've seen it on the TV enough, haven't we? And I can remember Paul had gone and we were sat drinking tea in the kitchen and I was thinking, you know, he was get, I was getting a bit cross with him because I was upset and I didn't know where he was and I was thinking, come on, bloody get home. Did I in a million years think this would happen? God, no. So, but when I saw the police car pull up on the road and two police officers get out... You know, I knew. And mm. I can just remember my mum answering the door and screaming. And and me just wetting myself, really. And just... I didn't cry at all. Just total shock. Mm. Yeah. Oh. After hearing Rian recount these events, I have to be totally honest. And it did get a little bit emotional. And we had to take a little five-minute break. But as we come back into this conversation, it's still focused around the topic of mental health, but how Rian has found running and sport as a way of helping her mental health. And in particular, talking about one of her many incredible achievements, and that being her running the London Marathon. On the topic of mental health, I also wanted to highlight your incredible achievement of running the London Marathon back in 2017 (laughs) for the charity Heads Together, which was also documented on the BBC series Mind Over Marathon, in which you and nine others who suffer with a myriad of mental health struggles committed to running the London Marathon. But what I want to know is... Had you found running as kind of like a therapy to dealing with mental health before or after you signed up to the marathon? Or did it really help with kind of your headspace and sort of your struggles that you were going through? So I, I d- dabbled in a bit of running dabbled. beforehand. <laughs> I, I enjoyed running, you know. I mean, I do. It's a bit strong, isn't someone it? Someone who's dabbled, you've run marathons, half marathons, <laughs> 10Ks. I would yeah. think you've done more I run than slowly. Um, I, I had done some, um, and, but my focus, I don't know if it makes it slightly different, was always to achieve something. So I've always been now since... I hadn't done anything like this before Paul and George died, ever. And then after they died, I, I just always needed to focus. So I I got a bit into running, did a few 10Ks. And then when this was advertised, I thought, oh, why not? I didn't in a million years think I'd get, 
get through to the final the final program um but it did it changed it completely changed my life the whole program um and getting to talk about things it's probably the first time I'd actually spoken about things yeah. very publicly um and yeah I've run I've run quite a lot since again I'm no you know I'm not particularly a Paula Radcliffe but I I do enjoy it when I can do it um and I will continue to run hopefully my mm-hmm. friends are going to be listening to this going because <laughs> 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 people still remember that program and they come up and go oh my god it's Rianne the runner. <laughs> when I'm with my friends and they're all like, Rianne the runner. Rianne the I'm runner. Like, yeah, I, I, that's me. That's me. <laughs> yes, yes, don't burst me. their bubble. Um, but what advice would you give anyone who is struggling with their mental health, especially those that are dealing with grief? I always say to talk. Yeah. I, and I, it's that cliche, isn't it? Don't suffer in silence. Mm. But it's so, so true. I can remember talking about what had happened day, day, hours after Paul and George died, and I always have. Um, and it's not easy, and a lot of people do find it difficult. But if you can't talk to people you know, pick up the phone and speak to somebody, because it, it does truly help. Um, but also, knowing that you're not alone, so find some kind of support group, because as soon as you find someone who has an understanding, everyone's different, don't get me wrong, but have an understanding that also helps yeah. and and fresh air is a, is a huge thing for me so I'm lucky I've got a, a back garden and, and I, if I can and as long as it's not raining I'll always go and have a cup of tea in the morning sitting outside yeah I think you just need to try and appreciate what's around you yeah just the, try and find the simple things yeah definitely um but I wanted to touch on your advocacy of sport in kind of creating a sense of community, positivity, and obviously the benefits that can come with it, mm. with dealing with grief and mental health. And it's obviously been such a strong theme of your life, mm. as that's how I first met you, my PE teacher. But how has sport helped you throughout your whole life? Gosh, oh, it always had, like literally since I was like your age mm. that I met, met you, I've always played sport team sports as well more than individual I love being with the people I'm quite extroverted and I I just love socializing and being with people um and sport has always for me been that channel um since Paul and George died through the charity it's always physical events a lot of physical events which I know isn't for everybody but from what I've seen we always target it to the masses yeah so the cycle ride for instance the first year we did it you know my hairdresser the children's teachers it's it's about getting out and doing it not about being the best or the fastest yeah and one of the the parts of the charity I am probably most proud of and I'm I struggle to use the word proud um is the communities that we've we've created through friendships of doing these activities and things yeah because I heard you mention in the past that it's the sport teams that are the really important things, especially for the males. Mm-hmm. Why is that? And kind of what has what has the benefit been of the sporting teams that you guys have created through to wish for the men in particular? So like men's mental health, and obviously, you know, talking about this based on what happened to Paul is, is a big passion of mine. Um, but if you looked at who we support as a charity through your counselling and support groups, you're looking at mostly females and yeah. mums and, and grandmothers. Um, we set up a football team for dads and, it, you know, we filled it. We've got a rugby team for dads. But, you know, that's the way they want to communicate and come together. And 
They sometimes talk about their child, but actually they just know the man stood by the bar with his pint has an understanding of how he feels. So, yeah, it's 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 great to see. And, yeah, some, some have reached out and had counselling. We even tried exercise prescription. So we spoke to local leisure centres about rather than offering counselling to to men and women, and this was after the Mind Over Marathon programme, that maybe some of the gyms would sign up with us and allow us to pay the gym memberships for them so they could try and use that as part of their sort of, not recovery, but um, their coping mechanism. And it seems like such a simple yet effective thing to be able to offer people that can have such huge benefits. And I know we've discussed some of the successes that you've had since starting to wish, but what I'd love to know is, has there been any times in your journey with the charity when you've maybe had a setback or you've learned from this and something better has come from it? Um, God, we all have knockbacks, don't we, in mm. life? And I think you have to have them to get stronger. One of the ones that really stands out for me and, and I truly believe is where to wish really did start to grow was after not long after the boys died, I raised quite a bit of money and I went to the local health board and I met the chief executive and my sister took me and I explained I wanted to use it in the hotel, in the hotel, in the hospital where George died and she didn't want to take my money and felt it wouldn't go to a good use. And I cried all the way home because I thought it's important. Yeah. And that's when I think I realised that if that's where bereavement is being seen at, on an executive level in health boards, then somebody, and something has to be done about it. And that's where I decided that this was going to be my passion and, and that's where it all came from. Yeah. And has your kind of end goal of what you wanted from To Wish evolved over the years? Yeah, absolutely. Um I have become very stubborn and determined. I, I, I must have been before somewhere. But um, when you have a passion, and it's been my long-term passion since I lost the boys, um, I, haven't, I haven't had to be that determined at times because I've spoken to people and they're like, yeah. Yeah. There is a, there is a gap. And I think that's what makes us special is we, we didn't try and reinvent the wheel. We found a gap and we have filled it. And only recently we've almost... I was trying to persuade Welsh Government that families should not have to find help, that an immediate support should be given to them at the time of death. And I think they just, you know, they got fed up with me. I was ringing them, I was meeting with them, I was just saying, you you, you just can't give a leaflet to a family yeah. when they've just faced the most unimaginable loss. And only recently, um, finally, Welsh Government have agreed Amazing. that we will they will implement an immediate support pathway now for all deaths. Amazing. I guess that's the thing as well is people see the end result Mm. but like you said yes now this is amazing and this is great and you're obviously so thankful and happy that Welsh Government have got on board with this yeah but it doesn't just happen like that this has been such a long process and that's what people probably don't realize because I mean yes there's so much more for to wish to grow with but you're people especially within Wales and South Wales are aware of the work you've done but you started from such small beginnings and you've had to really fight for where you're at now. And I guess that's kind of what people maybe don't mm. realise, that it's not that it's not been that easy. No, and it and I, I have got a team who I'm very protective of. So, you know, 
what we do is is very unique. Mm. You know, if this happens today, we get told. So if you see something on the news or you hear of an incident, we already know as, as the organisation. And people don't realise how reactive we are to, yeah. to what happens. So we, you know, we don't get any funding. We don't get as much recognition. You know, I get a lot of recognition because of what I went through and what I've done. And but that, you know, it's a tiny piece of what we do. I've got a whole team of people who are doing this. They deserve that recognition. Um, and I'm, you know, they, they are changing lives and making such a difference. And yeah, it's been hard. Like I, I have no regrets, and I certainly don't regret setting up to wish. But I think it hindered. It hindered my progress probably for the first two or three years. Yeah. Because I became a complete workaholic. Yeah. I was working 24-7. I <clears throat> literally not going to bed probably for three years. Yeah. Um, and I don't regret it, but maybe if I had grieved first, I may not have had the struggles I potentially have because I denied it for quite a long time. Yeah. And do you... Because you're obviously constantly reminded of what's kind of happened with George and Paul mm. every day. It's, it is what you do. Does it, is it sometimes really difficult to cope with that you just kind of, you almost, and it sounds ridiculous because you, you're never going to forget, but it's always at the forefront of your mind. And is that really hard to cope with sometimes? Oh, definitely. I think that's why my grief and trauma is dragging on yeah. for so long. And I've actually asked my like psychotherapist, my counsellor this. I've literally looked him in the eye and said, will I ever get better whilst I'm still doing this job and and he doesn't have the answer to that because he knows that it it does certainly hinder my recovery in any way um but I don't I don't want to do this forever yeah um saying that I don't ever know how I'll get out of this because it is something and I do love what I do now as well um but yeah like I do re-traumatize myself sometimes because when I do share my story so I do a lot of training with frontline workers the police and I talk them through minute by minute what we went through what we saw what we did um and it doesn't affect me but it has to affect me and I'm just reliving it over and over again and even though I feel it's the right thing and I do at the moment and I'm not ready to go because I haven't quite achieved what I want to achieve with this I think I owe it to myself but I also owe it to my family and obviously my my husband now as well, that yeah. life should try and normalise it a little bit maybe. Yeah. And how are, like how are Holly and Isaac, are they, do they sometimes get maybe a little bit sick of always having, not sick of it, but they're constantly being reminded or do you kind of protect them from it quite a bit when you're at home and you're a family? Is it not really a massive part of is to wish isn't always the topic of conversation I think it's gone in stages you know I think for the first four years it couldn't carry on the way it was when you've got a husband and three children and your life is perfect um and then it is just smashed in front of you and you're left with two children that people kept saying to me was my reason to keep going well actually that's not what I Mm. wanted I didn't want to be a mum to two children a single mum I call myself a double mum because I was mum and dad it's not the way my plans were going and I I didn't even want to necessarily be a mum to them at that point and I'm not you know I am ashamed to say that now but it was all about a surviving but secondly creating a legacy for the boys that was more important than anything for me and then I think it got to a point where 
I hit that rock bottom and, and for me you hit rock bottom there's only one way to go and that's up yeah um, and then not long after I think it was about seven years after I met my husband um, my, my husband who, who's my husband now and he helped me draw a line a little bit between this business which it is a business yeah. at the end of the day I have created um, and this legacy but also for my own sake as much as anyone's is to have a normal home life as well yeah so like in the evenings now I've, he tries to put get my phone away and I sneak to the toilet and I but I am so much better and as I said earlier for my my kids I just don't want them to resent to wish or Paul and George because they never had me yeah around and the pandemic taught me a lot of about myself and yeah. to that because I couldn't go anywhere yeah and actually by being with Holly and Isaac it didn't mean I didn't care about Paul and George which I think for the first four or five years working showed I cared whereas that's rubbish it didn't matter and coming out of the pandemic I've promised myself to keep that work-life balance a bit more yeah and I know you've obviously mentioned about Craig but after Paul died did you ever think you'd be able to find love again I I knew very quickly I wanted I think I didn't think I would love again yeah. I wanted a family again mm. definitely I because I wanted Holly and Isaac to have stability and I wanted them to have a role model um so they know they've lost their daddy and we always call him daddy still um but they also now know they've got a dad yeah we spoke, they didn't want to call Craig dad, which is absolutely fine. So they, they call him Craig. Um, and I love him in a completely different way than I ever loved Paul. No more, no less. Like totally different individuals, which I didn't think would be possible because I always thought I'd compare, like I can't compare them. Like they're so different. Um, and life is really good. I think... I was 34 when I lost Paul and George. You know, that would have been a long, long time on my own. Um, and I want, as I said, I wanted the children to understand that, you know, we didn't need to be a unit because we were a unit mm. that was left. But I think, you know, I really wanted us to have that again. And and we have, and, and, and more sometimes, I think. Yeah. Because how did you meet Craig? So we... Good question. Come on Good. in. <laughs> and on that note, this is where part one ends. Join us next week for part two as we discuss the man that came into Rian's life in such a serendipitous way and made her fall in love again, as well as her love for her family and all the incredible achievements that Rian has gone on to accomplish. It's not one to miss, and I hope you enjoyed this episode, but I can't wait for you to listen to part two.